Okay, going in three, two, one. Welcome to... Oh, wow. I almost said the wrong podcast. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm having a morning. Okay. Uh, Welcome to Citizen Dame. Let me try that again. I'm going to start over. Sorry. Three, two, one. Let's go. Let's go. Oh, no. Do you want to... I'll let you. I'll let you. Next one. I'm excited, and I feel relaxed, and I'm ready to party! Don't say sorry. You don't need to do that. You don't need to apologize. It's a fucked up female habit. You don't need to be sorry for anything ever. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? I don't have rage issues! I have nothing to prove to you. When I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where I definitely have had enough sleep and I'm super not sick and fuzzy in my brain. (laughs) I'm so sorry, Karen. Oh, well, I am Karen Peterson. Pretty sure that's still true. (laughs) Joined by Lauren Humphreys-Brooks. And and my dog barking in the background. I don't know. And what he's Ribbon about. making a cameo. He has opinions too. He does have opinions. I think it's there. <laughs> there are dogs barking outside, and so he hears them, and so he's got to respond. And then it's like earlier today, he was barking at a, a garbage bag that was blowing across the street, and I was like, "It's a it's a trash bag. It's a trash bag." <laughs> and it wasn't leaving, so he just kept on barking, and I was like, "It's, it's a trash bag. It's I stop." Saw- I saw a TikTok the other day that was like, if if people acted like dogs, and this lady's standing outside in her front yard, and she goes, hey, hey, I'm outside, and then you can hear this guy from, like, next door or something going, hey, I'm also outside, let's talk. And then every once in a while, they just pause, just like, fuck you, it's like, oh, fuck you, too. <laughs> Oh, dogs are great. Oh, my word. Anyway. <laughs> um, so how's your week been, Lauren? My my week has been fine. It's been a little little hectic and everything. My parents were here for Easter, uh, which was great. And I loved having them here. But it was just like, oh, God, it's like a t- three people and a dog in a not huge Brooklyn apartment um but it was a lot of fun but like yeah my week's just been been a bit tiring and then all of the weird shit that's going down in the film world has been quite fascinating oh has weird stuff been going down i'm so unaware it's just just (laughs) weird it's weird there's like there are levels of weirdness that we keep on hitting i'm just like i don't even like i can't even be mad about anything it's just it's just odd yeah well, and then there's just these broad generalizations that people like to make that are just annoying. Yeah. Like the one I saw this morning, I think you had retweeted it about, you know, well, if you don't go see these movies, um, then you don't get you don't get to complain that yeah. there's no original movies. And I was just like, OK, but the people that I'm seeing that are not going to those movies, they're not complaining that there's not original movies. I understand that we curate our own Twitter feeds by who we follow, who we choose not to follow, who we mute and block, and and all that. I get it. But 
I feel like I see so many tweets of people complaining about what other people are saying about the movies in theaters, and I never actually see those complaints. <laughs> yeah, no, I it, it's it's been, well, I think that the the whole thing that the you know if you don't go see these movies, that's that's one of those things that keeps on getting repeated, right? Um, and you know, and and we've talked about this. The reasons why people are going are seeing certain movies in theaters, not seeing others. Um, kind of the shifting things that are going on because of the pandemic and because of people's levels of comfort, you know, and and I even said, like, I would 100, I would probably be going to see, at least go see the Northman um, this, this weekend. Like, that's probably something I would do. I'm still nervous about movie theaters. That's like me personally. Um, You know, I don't fault anyone for not being nervous about it, but like, I'm not going to see the Northman because of the pandemic. It has nothing to do with the quality of the film. Right. And you know, and we we talked about when Spider-Man came out and then the fact that uh, West Side Story was out around the same time and West Side Story like failed at the box office technically and, and Spider-Man didn't. And it was like, well, it makes sense though because people are making choices about when what they go to see, when they go to see it, what they want to risk themselves for versus what they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are all kinds of things that are sort of feeding into this, but the idea of like, also, I'm sorry, the idea that like the Northmen or um, or the Nick Cage movie or everything everywhere all at once are somehow like going to compete with MCU films or something like that. It's like th- those are these are two completely separate things. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's I mean this is coming back to obviously it's a different movie, but some of the convert and I haven't actually seen the Northman yet. I'm supposed to see it today, um, but I. You know, some of the conversations I've seen around that one have sounded very similar to the arguments people made about The Last Duel. And I'm just like, okay, but those are not, they're not the same movie and they're not doing the same thing. And it just feels, again, like we have, we have so many bad faith arguments about movies and it's like, no, people didn't didn't choose to see the last duel not because it was a violent medieval movie but because it was a violent medieval movie about a woman getting raped and not believed that's very different from whatever the northman is doing yeah exactly like um you know most people that i talked to who had heard of the last duel by the way a lot of people had and they were just like what ben affleck and matt damon in a medieval movie (laughs) no that's as as someone as someone said on my my Twitter feed, no, Ben Affleck has a face that knows about email. Um, <laughs> I think that that's a really good like description of that. Just like no, the, the yeah, the no, they don't exist in the medieval period. Exactly. Um, uh, but yeah, but most of them are just like, well, what is it about? And it's like, well, this is what it's about, you know. And and it's it's about a a a woman who who is raped and then she isn't believed, and her husband challenges the rapist to a duel. And immediately, it was just like, no, I'm not going to watch that. Mm-hmm. It's a two and a half hour movie about about rape. Like, no, I don't want to see that. Right. And you know, similarly, I think there will be a lot of people who don't want to watch The Northman because it is a viking era movie that is extremely violent but that's a different reason from why they chose not to see the last duel and i'm just tired of people conflating these arguments as if everything that keeps people away from movies is the same thing because it's not there are lots of reasons why people choose or don't choose to watch movies you know there's going to be people that are going to skip 
The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which is a fantastic movie because they just don't give a shit about Nicolas Cage. And that is fine. If you don't like Nicolas Cage, that movie is going to be wasted on you. Yeah, the the idea that like, well, and we need to get away from, we've talked about this before, we need to get away from the idea of the box office. Mm-hmm. First of all, that all films compete with all other films. Right, in terms yeah. Of box office. And, and second of all, that box office is the only indication of the people go to see films. So like the, the idea that, you know, something like the Northman, which is a Robert Eggers film and Robert Eggers is a very niche director. You either like his stuff or you don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's notorious for being a difficult filmmaker to watch. And this right? is his biggest release. So it's yeah. hard to know like what people are going to say. Cause most people, your average audience has not seen the witch or the lighthouse. Yeah, and, and he's so he's got this. He has this reputation already, um, and the idea that that should be compared to you know Spider Man or even the Batman or something like that is is just it's like the, these are completely separate things, and we need to talk about them as separate things. We need to stop relying on box office, especially in in you know the the since the past couple of years. You can I see my problem is with with some of these pundits is that you would think that by this point people would be like, hey, there are a lot of different factors that are affecting the choices that people make about theaters and about movies. And we need to talk about all those factors before we get into just like the more simplistic analysis. It's like, no, instead they're just like, well this proves that no one wants adult films. Just like I don't think that that's the conclusion here. No, no, not at all. There's so many things that go into what movie, what, like you're saying, what people choose to spend their money on, which also let's not forget the fact that movies have gotten more expensive in the last two to three years too. And that is also another factor. So, you know, I, I've talked about this before as well. Movie Pass showed that there are people who, like, a lot of people who still do want to go to the movies. It's just gotten too expensive. And when you have to pay $25 just to get in the door for one person, you're going to be a lot more selective about what you choose to see. In the case of what we saw in December, people are going to choose the third installment of a franchise, of a specific franchise, in the 28th or whatever, of an overall franchise that they already know they like compared to a remake of a movie that either they never saw, didn't really care for, or absolutely loved. Yeah. Yep. We got to get away from this shit, man. (laughs) Yeah. Like, let's just stop with the, uh, just these weird, I don't know. Like, let's just stop and step back and look at the entire picture. We get so focused on just like a tiny little, thing and draw so many conclusions from it and it's it's not serving anybody and it's really teaching studios the wrong lessons too about what they should and should not green light yeah absolutely so um but you know it's a good thing there was nothing weird on tv this week happening (laughs) in the world people could pay attention to and be like this this so we're going to talk about johnny depp right yeah and and the amber heard in the defamation trial and everything mm-hmm. yeah Which i mean I... broadcast daily on uh used to be court tv i don't remember <laughs> what it's called now <laughs> and i mean i'm not i'm not watching it but i am watching i'm like paying attention to the articles and like the highlights and stuff like that and it is just bizarre like everything is just bizarre everything's weird i'm like 
okay, whatever. Let's, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it was so interesting because I, I was home from work on Tuesday for reasons. And I was trying to work on something. And I was just like, you know what? I'll just turn this on for some background, you know? And uh, just background ambient sound. And so it was like right when Johnny had started testifying. And I'm listening to him tell stories about his home life, like his family life when he was a kid. And telling stories about his parents. And I was just like, wow, I I never knew any of this stuff. But also, what does this have to do with whether his ex-wife defamed him and ruined his career? And there was so much of that. Like, there was so much. You know, then it gets into, like, in this, I think it was the same day. Yeah, it must have been. Um, he gets into, like, how he found his way into acting and how it was, he was looking for jobs and he became friends with Nicolas Cage, actually, uh, who said, I think you're an actor. You should try acting. And he was trying to get his band off the ground and all this stuff. And I'm just like, I, uh, I, I feel like every person, every, like, TV person or you know variety in reporter or anybody who's ever tried to interview him has got to be so frustrated right now watching this because he's saying all these things which i know he's a notoriously private person and also an extremely shy one but it's like he's saying all these things in open court that he never would give to interviews it was like he was sitting for a for a cover story and none of it had anything to do with the actual trial. And I was just very, very confused about what was going on and why the judge was allowing it. And um, well, that's that's the question, isn't it? I mean, I kind of like I, I was saying to you on on our Slack a couple of days ago, it seems he's trying to he's obviously trying to kind of reinvigorate his career to sort yeah. of fix his public image. Right. Yeah. At, at the base level, and I think that there are a lot of other different things going on here too, but at the base level, that's one of the things that he's trying to do, so, which is understandable. I get like he's had, he's taken some major hits when it comes to his public image. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I understand him trying to do that, but the fact that he's doing it in court and the judge is letting him do it is just very, it's kind of like, this is not, and you say, what does this have to do with anything? This yeah, doesn't, you know, it just doesn't like, seem relevant. But it's like, yeah, he's he's had, you know, and I, I've liked Johnny Dub for a long time. You know, he's had a really fascinating career. He's, you know, had a lot of difficulties with his career. He's changed kind of his personas over time, all of that. That's all fine to talk about and to be interested in, but it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not Amber Heard um, like ruined his career. So, yeah. and also let's talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. From a public let's, perspective. Let's do. Um, I mean, I think it's hard to say. I do think that, I do think it's true that a lot of, of um, things that we think about him definitely changed during and after their marriage, um, which was a very short marriage. And... I definitely have seen people turn on him and he's now lost roles. He lost um, Grindelwald, although I think that he needs to stop considering that a loss. Um, I guess the money. But (laughs) anyway, um, there definitely has been damage to his career. The question is, 
is she the reason that his sam that his career is damaged or is it knowing that there was just stuff like how do you prove that she's the reason i guess is is the question it's been really weird and this happens all the time i know but it's been really weird watching the way people on twitter suddenly become legal experts and I saw, you know, all week I've seen one side that's been like, well, Johnny has this in the bag. There's no way Amber's going to lose, like, legally, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, I I don't know where you're getting that, but okay. And then there's another side that's like, well, Amber's definitely winning this case. Like, the judge obviously is siding with her. And I'm just like, okay. All these people, everyone's an expert, I guess. And I am definitely not. And I don't know what specifically the judge is looking for. I don't know what the standard would be in Virginia where this is being tried in Fairfax County. Um, but it just, it seems, it seems like a really difficult thing to prove, especially considering that there is a lot of evidence that maybe, maybe there's not specific evidence that he did hit her, but there's a lot of evidence that it was an extremely toxic relationship and that there was a lot of, of, abuse of different types going both ways. And so for him to to say that she ruined his career, I, that seems like a really tough one to prove. Well, and and actually a lot of the the actual analysis that I've read of the of the trial as it's going on, right? Is it from is exactly actual experts? From actual people who study this and who are like court reporters <laughs> and you know and are and or are journalists interviewing legal experts, et cetera, that that's basically what it comes down to. This is a hard thing to prove. Mm -hmm. um, and this the some people actually are looking at this as a bellwether to see, you know, if he's successful, um, that that can kind of change shift some of the legal ramifications of defamation and libel and things like that the reason why it's being tried in virginia is because virginia has much laxer laws um when it comes to defamation and libel than places like california yeah and i i'd read something that said that specifically they were able to file in fairfax because of the op-ed she wrote having gone yeah. through servers in Fairfax County. And so that's what gave him standing to sue there. Yeah. And, and this is another side of it that actually kind of makes him, him look worse because they're choosing to do this in a state that has these laxer laws versus in a state that has more, that has stricter laws in terms of the burden of proof is still on him. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's like slightly different. Yeah. So the the whole thing i mean when it comes out to you know you're talking about public image depp's career at least the public perception of him has basically been falling <laughs> since pirates of the caribbean um and and it's it's gotten worse and worse you know he's had a lot of failures he's had a lot of films that just haven't done well and these are big budget films right mm -hmm. you've got the alice in wonderland films and you know when grindelwald and and all of those and then you have other films like um the tourist was it? and moriarty the tourist yes yeah. not moriarty um, what was mordecai. That? mordecai mordecai um black mass uh what was the other one city city something but like he has become less and less of a box office draw. And I guess that there's probably an argument that this coincides with the relationship 
And so there might be some argument to be made about the the issues that were going on within the relationship and the, you know, him losing certain parts or, you know, having difficulty performing or, or things like that. But it's like there have even been articles. There's a Rolling Stone article um, several years ago that was about him. And it was basically like he he's he's an he's probably an alcoholic. He's probably got a drug problem. Um, he's got issues, right? That and that might be related to that that relationship, but are not solely the like the relationship is not the sole cause of those. And we have to remember, Depp has been Depp has had problems his entire career. Right. He's had problems with alcohol. He's had problems with drugs. He, there have been periods where he's gotten clean. Um, he's had problems with tearing up hotel rooms and having volatile relationships. And none of that is saying that like, oh, that is, you know, that's just who he is or that there isn't like an issue that he's having to deal with. And all of, all of this comes down to, for me, at least it's very sad because he is a good actor somewhere underneath all of that. He is a good actor. Um, he's done a lot of good things. You know, he's obviously, he, he obviously has a good relationship with his kids. He has a good relationship with a lot of his exes, you know, so whatever has been going on is just very, very sad. But I, to say that it is that the downfall of his career is Amber Heard's fault just seems, it, it seems ridiculous, at least from, from uh, the, the public perception of it. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things. It's really hard to say. I mean, especially because of the fact that we default to to you know assuming that women can't be the abusers, or at least physically in relationships, or or not that they can't be, but usually that they aren't, which is obviously not true. There's lots of cases of women um, being violent in relationships, but um, yeah, it's just it's very hard to say. It, and I agree with you. What it comes down to is it's all just really sad. And I, you know, I had thought that he was just done. That, like, his his career was pretty much just over. That he just wasn't the same actor anymore. And then I remember, I'm so silly, but I remember watching Murder on the Orient Express. And there were glimpses. He's not in it very much because he's the guy that gets murdered. But um, there were glimpses where I was just like, wait, this feels a little bit like watching the old Johnny Depp. Like, he's still in there somewhere. And so whatever the outcome is of this, I think that if he loses, it is going to do more damage to him. Or at least he will do more damage to himself um, in the fallout of that. But, um, but I hope that he can resolve and move past you know, whatever it is that, that really is holding him back. And, and, you know, I hope I, I, this is the thing is like, has, even if Amber was responsible for what's happened to his career, is it permanent? We've seen in Hollywood, like anybody can come back. And I think he's someone that if he really wanted to, he could come back no matter what the outcome is of this trial. I mean, it would take it would take one role, basically. Yeah, um, it would take run one role to kind of reinvigorate that. And I, I agree with you. He in Murder on the Orange Express, he's great. Like he's very, very good. 
Um, and, and he's compelling. That's, that's the other thing. One of the yeah. things that, that made him such a good actor is that whatever role he was playing, he was compelling to watch. That's what makes the first Pirates of the Caribbean so good is that it's not that he's this kind of outlandish caricature, but that he's really compelling as this outlandish caricature. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's kind of what led to him being compared to people like Brando or James Dean or, um, I, you know, actors like that, that, that he, he's able to more than many other actors in his generation, he was able to kind of morph into these different characters. And, uh, and now, you know, kind of like, okay, this is just sad, but you know, I mean, we're, we're talking about the Nick Cage movie and a couple of years ago, if you had said, oh, Nick Cage is going to make this big comeback and everybody's going to love him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, I'd be like, oh, no, not at all. Because we, you know, and Nick Cage's problems are are completely different from Johnny Depp's problems. Right. But um, but he's he's like sort of leaned into the weirdness of his persona. He's leaned into the extremity of it. And we, he's also reminded us that he's a good actor. Mm-hmm. Right. Pig reminded us just like, hey, by the way, all of the like extremities of Nick Cage. Uh, he's still a really great actor. Like if he's perfectly capable of nuance. Yeah. So yeah. I, I do think that Johnny Depp, if he would be able to to kind of reinvigorate his career, would he would be able to do it. But it's going to take him doing something mm-hmm. and um, and also possibly getting lucky, like getting that role that um, that enables him to kind of remind us of why we liked him in the first place. Yeah. And it's possible that it's going to be a long time before a studio is willing to give him that shot again. But there's so many movies being made um, by smaller studios, by independent filmmakers. And I think that's, you know, that's the route that he probably needs to go at this point. And I mean, sure, he did lose a big, huge contract. And I think a lot of that did have to do with Amber but uh or at least their situation but um i think also i don't know I, I, yeah it's it doesn't have to be over for him if it's over for him it's because he's decided to give up is really what it comes down to or or he's unable to get past some of the the problems that he quite obviously right. has right right well and that's that's part of what i guess i guess give up sounds a little bit flippant and i don't mean it that way like i think there comes a point where you know, some people just, they really can't keep doing it and they have to just stop. And that's, that's really more what I mean. Like if he just decides, you know what, this isn't, I don't have the energy to keep, you know, to keep trying to do this, then, then that's, that'll be it. But I think that's in some ways that's also still on his own terms. So. Yep, definitely. Um, so a a related topic, but this actually was not about Johnny Depp. It happened to fall during the, (laughs) during this trial that's going on, but this was actually not about Johnny Depp. This was about one of his former co-stars, actually. Um, so Alicia Grosso on Twitter posed a question that I thought was a good one that I think we should talk about, um... And so it was Hollywood ethics question. At some point, if a studio has a franchise slash multi-franchise actor in marquee roles who has clearly been spiraling out for years and harming others, 
is it fair to say it's been on the studio to intervene and get them help? And this was actually specifically about Ezra Miller, who has been arrested twice in the last month um, in Hawaii. And this is a, a big issue. Miller, uh, of course, is the Flash in the DCEU movies, was also um, a character in the Fantastic Beasts movie. Um, I don't know if that will continue or not. They definitely left it where the character does not have to return for the next movie if they don't want him to. Uh, anyway. Um, but I think that this is a, a good question to talk about. So first of all, basically the question is if, if a studio has an actor contracted for a franchise and multiple movies in that franchise and that actor starts behaving badly, causing harm, getting arrested over and over again, uh, what is the studio's responsibility? Do they have one? And, um, and if they do, what should they be doing about it? So Lauren, what are your thoughts on that? This is kind of a hard one because obviously the, the studio has an investment in actors, right? They have an investment in people, um, you know, maintaining a good public persona. It's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, there used to be morality contracts, morality clauses in, in contracts the studio signed with stars that you had to behave in a certain way yeah. and not behaving in a certain way would actually get you, get you fired or get you penalized, et cetera. And very often this was more about, um, it, it could be about, you know, pub, public perception and violence, but it could also be about sexuality, you know, all of that. Um, I'm not necessarily, I wouldn't advocate returning to that, but in some ways, you know, one, it would be nice to see studios taking some responsibility for the behavior of their stars and certainly for the issues that are occurring on sets. And we've had recently um, some fairly high profile people getting into trouble and, and films getting paused basically. Um, or people even getting fired. So both uh, Frank Langella on um, the Fall of the House of Usher series and Bill Murray uh, in his most recent film, like Frank Langella got fired um, because of a complaint against him. Bill Murray, they paused filming. And which is kind of, it's actually sort of a, a good sign, I think, that people are beginning to take these, this kind of behavior more seriously. They're not just like, oh, we're just going to put up with it. Um, it's like, no, we're actually, there are actually going to be consequences as a result of this. When it comes to, to people that obviously need help, right? And there's a different, there's some people who are abusive do not necessarily need help. They're, they're abusive because they can be. Some people are obviously like having a difficult time and they need some, they need some kind of support. I would say that the studios have some kind of obligation to at least try to help them. Um, whether or not that actually, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing because a lot of people, you know, it's kind of like you have to ask for help, basically. You have to want to be helped. And I think that there are definitely actors that do not want to be helped. Um, but for the studio to actually say, you know, like, if you keep on acting this way, you're going to lose your part. That might be, that might be like a way to kickstart people and to kind of make them go, you know, I have to stop behaving like this and, and I need help doing that because you've got a drug problem, you've got an alcohol problem, you know, you've got, you need therapy, whatever, you know? Yeah. I, I think that this is kind of one of those things where 
a lot of actors, they really need someone to be there. This doesn't sound like quite the right word, but really they need someone to be their friend. Like, really be there and say, hey, let's level with you. Uh, I'm concerned about what I'm seeing, and we really need to, to talk about this. We really need to find a solution. You know, I think that so many celebrities, I don't know what is the case with Ezra Miller. I don't know what they're dealing with, but, um, but I think so many celebrities are just surrounded by people who put up with their shitty behavior, who just accept it, who, um, join in and stuff like that. I think with, with Miller specifically, where they're being really, um, uh, like, terrifying in public, like beating people up in public and stuff like that. Strangers, total strangers and attacking folks and, and stuff. I think that's a, a whole other situation. And I think that's one where obviously now the police are going to be involved. They've been arrested twice. Um, but I think that, I think in general, in cases such as like Johnny Depp, um, you know, I think when we see a pattern of behavior where we're like, yeah, that this person really needs some help. I think that the studio, especially when they have co contracted this person, they've created a long running relationship with that person. I think they do have some responsibility, even if it's not do this or else. I, in fact, I think that's a little oftentimes like a little less helpful way to go, but just really leveling with someone and saying, listen, we're really concerned about what we're seeing. What can we do to support you and how can we get you some help that you clearly need? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's always difficult when you're, and you know, people talk about the issues that people who are addicts, and but also just people who um, need therapy, right? Need right. like to, to deal with anger problems with, you know, whatever happens to be going on with them. They have to want to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. You can't force someone to you, you can't force someone who's depressed to go talk to a therapist. Um, they have there, there has to be a step. You can encourage them, but there has to be a step that they right. take. Right. Um, and when it comes to celebrities, particularly the higher profile celebrities, you're talking about people who are very often never told no, mm -hmm. um, who are given a great deal of power, a lot of money. Um, a lot of, you know, are, and are basically told like you have, you can do whatever you want to. And some of them do. Yeah. Um, but, but you also have to think about, I think the safety of other people. Mm -hmm. Um, and especially when you're talking about things that are occurring on set. So there's, there's a difference, there's a difference between what was happening with Miller versus an issue on set versus some, right. you know, the Bill Murray or the Frank Langella things where these were things that were happening on set that were creating toxic environments for other people. Yes. Right. And the studio does have a, uh, I, I think a, an obligation to be certain that the set is, is safe for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I don't um, know anybody who would disagree with that. And I don't yeah. want to know anybody who would disagree with that. Um, but but there is still this tendency to kind of dismiss a lot of things to sort of be like, well, that's just the way that he is because he's a star. You know, that's just, that's the way he's always been. It's like, well, but we've been we've been going through however many years now, five years at least of, um, you know, have, of having this conversation about abusive people, about abusive stars. And a lot of them are getting away with it and are allowed, are allowed to continue to be abusive because no one has said to them, 
you can't do this anymore. Right. You have to stop. And if you don't stop, there are going to be consequences, right? And so, so yeah, there, there is definitely a balance that has to be struck. You kind of I begin to wonder if people like, you know, someone like Kevin Spacey had been simply told no enough times by by other people in power right not by victims yeah, not but by the by, victims yeah but by by other people in power had been told you can't behave in certain ways at you know at what maybe that would have limited or at least you know stopped some of the abuse later on yeah yep so i think what we are saying is uh yes but the the responsibility that they have in the way that they should the studios should handle it depends on a little bit on the situation if it's an outside problem or an inside problem yeah is that fair to say yeah i i, I mean like i say i definitely don't think that they need to start bringing back morality clauses or anything like that because that was problematic in itself oh um, yeah yeah um but but i mean that was that was the way the studio system functioned for a long time it was a requirement that stars behave in certain ways publicly right and and not get into not get into certain situations otherwise there would actually be literal consequences for their careers mm-hmm. um and of course this also this also by the way like extended to you can't have extramarital sex you can't be gay you know right. that kind of thing yeah. so we're not not saying that but um but but yeah, I mean that was that was the way that the studio system functioned for a very long time, and we don't want to return to that. But there are the studio has to have some kind of responsibility for the behavior of its own stars. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, something else that came out this week that was just another frustrating head scratcher that made more sense when people started, the people who participated in it completely said, "Yeah, this is clickbait." Um, Gen Z, you're wonderful and you're frustrating. But anyway, um, so there was an article that came out this week that we're not going to link to um, just because they don't need the clicks, even the hate clicks. That's part of the problem. Um, But it was about rom-coms and... You know, they did that typical thing where they said these are the best of all time and... Um, and then they proceeded to list 50 movies that, you know, all came out after 1980. I think, Mm -hmm. I think 47 of them came out after like 1998. (laughs) And so very, very frustrating list. Now, I do think that some of the movies that are on the list are good choices, um, but then there's others where I'm like, I'm sorry, but you're just trolling us if you put To All the Boys I've Loved Before at number 49, which I enjoy the heck out of that movie. But to say that that is a better rom-com than, uh, I don't know, anything that came out before, between like 1905 and, I don't know, ever, it, it was that there's just a lot of head scratching that went on. It was very clear that this list was made by people who don't watch enough movies. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I don't think we need to rehash all of the various things that, that are wrong with lists like this. I mean, in a certain sense, it's not surprising. Yeah. Um, you see these kinds of lists all the time and, and they are clickbait and they're obviously clickbait. I think what was shocking to me was the fact that they were like, well, this was totally clickbait. It's like, 
Are you actually admitting that the things that your website is publishing are crap? Like that's essentially what you're saying, that, that, that you're bullshitting, you think your readership is stupid. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you're only doing things for clicks. I mean, you know, fair play to being honest, but also I don't think you want to be like, our website is shit. <laughs> Right, yeah, it was it was a very strange, uh, very strange choice. <laughs> yeah, so. and but I mean, at a, at a at a different level, you know, and unsurprisingly, this website it also has one of its major writers is the dude who decided that he couldn't watch all over Fifi um, because it was boring, mm -hmm. and that he also wasn't a film critic, even though he's written like two books about films. Yeah. Um, which again just infuriates me makes me so mad but i think that this is a broader problem right mm -hmm. this is a broader pro so the list itself is just like okay yeah we can ignore it whatever but there are so many people that just refuse to watch or refuse to engage with films that came out before 1980 that came out before they were born right yeah and and that's very often the cutoff point right and first of all, it is stupid. It makes you look dumb um, if you're going to be writing about films and, and to say like, you know, oh, she's all that or, so, or something like that is a better film than, I don't know. It, it says that, oh, I guess you've seen, never, never seen some like it hot. Um, and second of all, it just does this. It's so destructive to, to film discourse, to film conversation and to film history itself. And it's just, it's just disrespectful. It's like, you know, you, you couldn't be bothered to, to talk about or to even think about some of the earlier films that had come out. Yeah, well, and this is, you know, this is something that we have talked about on this podcast many, many times. Um, the lack of willingness to engage with quote-unquote older movies um, and in general. But it's also just... I think a big problem with the fact that, I mean, there are good things about the fact that so many movies are being made now, but one of the problems is that it makes it easier and easier to ignore all the things that came before it and that, you know, built, built the industry that we have now. Um, and of course, there are a lot of studios who just choose not to uh, keep preserving things. Um, and, you know, you have streamers like Netflix, which is also in hot water this week, but um, where it's like, it's really difficult to find anything on Netflix that came out before 1990, maybe 1980, yeah. but, but yeah. And it's like, I mean, Amazon Prime tends to just dump a lot of stuff. They don't do anything to promote or really make it easy to find, but they'll just kind of quietly put it out there. I think in terms of the major streamers, the one that makes it easiest to find older movies is HBO Max because they do have a hub called TCM because they have a partnership there. But even there, they have a lot of great stuff, but it's like most it's like it's not a lot of hidden gems. Um it's mostly stuff that's very familiar and their definition of classic gets broader every year. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, you know, every once in a while, I don't use the, the the TCM hub very much because of that. Because a lot of it is either stuff that I've already seen, uh -huh. or it's just like I don't 
know what what you're defining as classic anymore. It's because it's becoming if you remember the old um, AMC channels. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, when they started showing stuff that had come out like within the previous five years, I was like, yeah. Wait, I'm it, confused. Af- after a while, it's just like, what are we defining as classic? And, and then why? it'd be like the new classics. Yeah. Well, I think part <laughs> of the problem is. Like, I mean, I'm guilty of this, too. If there's a movie that I love, I'll go, oh, that movie's a classic. And it's just because I just love it. It's not because it's actually from the classic period uh-huh. or anything like that. Yeah. But but one of the things that I wanted to talk about is that there is this perception that older films, uh, particular, and, you know, we're talking about romantic comedies here, that older films are staid. They're not as, you know, they're not as sexual. They're not as... Um, honest in a lot of ways about Mm -hmm. human relationships and and things like that. And I think that some of that perception comes from, um, actually comes from places like TCM who tend to reshow the same films, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of it is because they're comforting because they are classics, you know, I'm not saying that they're not, but they're much more mannered in a lot of ways. And some of that is because of censorship and things like that. One of the things that, you know, I wanted to mention is check out pre-code films. It's pre-code April, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But check out pre-code comedies because, I mean, and I even watched a film last night that was not a comedy, but that begins with a woman going into a, a, a woman's home to give birth to the child that she has conceived out of wedlock. The entire story is about, like, her child and having this baby with a man that she thinks doesn't love her and like there's all of this back and forth but the entire thing is like she they're not married they're they're never married by the end of the film they're still not married and they have a child together um but so this idea that you know older films do not have are not actually dealing with real issues right or uh, are not treating romantic relationships as real in some sense is just just bullshit and I mean, one of the ones that I recommended to you is Designed for Living. Mm-hmm. Which I did not end up getting a chance to see. It's been a hard week. but um... Well, and what I wanted to say about it was that it's basically a polyamorous relationship. Mm-hmm. It's about a woman and she's kind of torn between two men and played by Frederick March and um, Gary Cooper. And these are like young Frederick March and Gary Cooper. <laughs> so, you know, props to her. Uh but the so they decide, okay, well, we'll all be in a relationship then. Mm-hmm. And while there's not, you know, a, an explicit statement that like the men are sleeping together, there's definitely the statement that that they're both sleeping with the woman. Um, and it's about the three of them kind of navigating this polyamorous romantic relationship where they all have this relationship with each other. And the two men are also, they're friends, they like each other, they hang out together, and they happen to be dating and sleeping with the same woman. Yeah. I think one of the things that um, a lot of people, especially people who are not versed in uh, older movies, classic movies, um, I think the problem is a lack of, of literacy surrounding text and context. And, um, this is another thing that we've talked about a lot, but you know, it's like, I, I used to think that all these movies were super clean and that people always behaved right. I mean, I remember being completely shocked when I realized that, um, in Casablanca, um, um, Rick and Elsa 
like, or anyway, that they had actually slept together. Like, I, I totally, I was just like, oh, they kissed. It's fine. You know, whatever. But when you realize that, like, no, those two definitely had sex. <laughs> and it was just like <laughs> such a, such a mind blowing thing for me because, you know, oh, people didn't do that back then. Like, you know, it was only married people, whatever. It was like, we just have these ideas about what what humans were like 40, 50, 80 years ago. And that is not correct. <laughs> and um, that's one of the great things about watching classic movies. But I think that's one of the problems that people have and why they think that these movies are so, like, clean and, and um, Puritan is because they just make these assumptions and they can't read between the lines of what's going on. And this is the thing is like, I'm not, I'm not the kind of person that's like, oh, I, you know, I don't want to watch sex scenes or I'm like, you know, I, I don't like a well shot sex scene can be actually very, very good. It can be very artistic, but most of the time, the sexiness of a film is in the buildup to those scenes. It's yeah. not in the actual showing of the sex itself. And I think that's where people get these ideas that like these, these older movies are, are puritanical because you don't actually mm -hmm. see the act and they're completely missing all the sexy buildup to that. Well, and a lot of contemporary romantic comedies don't have sex in them because right. they're, they're going they for don't a even have kissing sometimes. Yeah, so so they'll like indicate, you know, that they went to, you know, they'll wake up in bed together or mm -hmm. they'll they'll make breakfast together or something like that, which will indicate that they, you know, had sex. Right. But a lot of the time, there aren't actual sex scenes in romantic comedies. Um, so, but I, I do think that that's why going to some of the pre-code films can be really useful because they're they are much more explicit not in terms of what they're shown but in what they talk about um and so this this whole idea of having you know this this romantic relationship between three people um it's very clear what's going on in in design for living um one of the other ones that is is widely considered to be the first screwball comedy is it happened one night which is a pre-code film and stars yeah. clark gable and, and claudette colbert there's a whole subtext one and, and a whole picture. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's this whole thing about them them you know they're traveling together right and they're sleeping in the same room because they have to basically, um, mm -hmm. and so he puts up the quote walls of Jericho which is a <laughs> a uh, a blanket right that's kind of separates their beds, uh -huh. and it's incredibly sexual like there there's this whole thing where you know he shows her how a man undresses. Um, and, you know, he begins taking, you know, he takes off his shirt, famous scene where Clark Gable takes off his shirt and he's not wearing an undershirt. And this inspired a whole bunch of men to stop wearing undershirts um, because everyone was like, oh, it's Clark Gable. He's so hot. Right. And um, and then and there's a joke where he, you know, he goes to take off his pants and she runs behind the curtain because she's just like, I can't possibly see that. <laughs> um, but it's it's funny. That's right. Good, and it's yeah. sexual. And there's there's that joke. There's there's a scene um, where they're having a conversation lying in bed. Right. They're in two separate beds and they've got this blanket separating them. But they're lying in bed. They're having this conversation. And she gets up and goes around to to the other side of the blanket. And that's when she, like, confesses to him that she's in love with them. Um, but so this is not subtext particularly, like it's pretty clearly about their attraction to each other and their desire for each other and this kind of back and forth game, game playing that they're doing, um, that is very, very sexual. And then you say 
that's what's good about it, right? It isn't like, oh, I want to fuck you. Oh, I want to fuck you too. It's like that no one wants that in a romantic comedy. We don't want that in contemporary romantic comedies because it isn't sexy. Exactly. Exactly. Um, um, yeah. Well, Sorry. and then I think the, you know, in terms of Puritanism and the Puritanism of older films, let's, let's mention Mae West. Yes. Yes. We did do an entire episode on Mae West and we yes. love her and she is our hero. But yes, let's talk about Mae West. Yes. But let's talk about Mae West who, you know, you could, you, there are a lot of this, this isn't really true, but you can make an argument that she's one of the causes of the adoption, the full adoption of the production code to begin with. Um, <laughs> But, you know, talk about sexuality in films. And yes, again, it's like, oh, she never gets naked. No, she doesn't. Um, but you kind of feel like she does. Oh, yeah. And she certainly undresses men with her mind uh, mm -hmm. and her voice and everything. But, but again, you've got these films, films like I'm No Angel, which is about a woman who has multiple partners, sleeps with all kinds of men, and then is like, meets this one guy and is like, oh, I'm actually in love with him. Yeah. Oh my and gosh, then winds up in court talking about <laughs> all of the men that she slept with. <laughs> it's just like, but I'm in love with this one guy. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, that movie's so good. Baby Cary Grant. <laughs> ba yeah, Baby Cary Grant, who, who actually did a number of pre-code comedies. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, but again, the, this is like, the funny thing about Mae West, and I, I do guess you have to, you have to like have a sense of humor. You have to be somewhat intelligent and and understand what innuendo is. Um, she very rarely says something that is explicitly sexual. Right. But everything that she does is sexual. Like she walks up the, a set of stairs and it's sexual. Mm -hmm. um, she looks at Cary Grant and you're just like, oh yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, we all look at Cary Grant that way. <laughs> yes um but but again i th i think that it's really helpful to people who are who actually want to see good romantic comedies to not just watch you know kind of the big ones and people always say bringing up baby absolutely love bringing up baby philadelphia stories some like it hot which is in itself incredibly subversive by the way we've talked about some like it hot before um but i think it's really good to also go back to some of the pre-code comedies where they are able to address some of these more varied relationships, right? This idea of polyamory, even homosexuality, jokes about homosexuality, um, jokes about, uh, you know, extramarital relationships, relationships outside of marriage, um, sex outside of marriage, and this kind of acceptance of that and, and dealing with it not as something that is bad or evil or dangerous, but funny, um, which is really what all of these come down to. It's about these romances that are also funny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, I just, I think that it, what's frustrating is that it's not like a lot of these movies are not available. I mean, we talked about HBO Max being kind of the big, the major one of the big streamers, but there's Criterion is there and they've got so much great stuff. YouTube has so many things that are available for free where there's so many ways to watch these older films that if the studios aren't going to preserve them and aren't going to give them the attention that they need, there's still ways to watch them. And, um, there, I mean, there's some great stuff, not just pre-code, but like back in the silent era where yeah. like that we've talked about too, where it's, I'm, of course I didn't write down any examples and now I'm struggling to think of one, 
But there's a lot where they deal with issues of, um, like, all kinds of issues, abortion and things like that. But also, um, like, romance and things in, in really clever and creative ways. And I think that even going into the code era, when they had to be a little bit more, quote unquote, behaved, that just made the writing richer in some ways because then they had to find ways to talk about stuff yeah. without talking about it. But but really the stuff that you can find in the pre-code era um I think is some of it is just as explicit as things that are being made today. Um I, actually our friend Movies Silently uh yes. did did a whole thread when when Ritzy, this yeah. conversation yeah when this conversation was going on um earlier this week she did a whole thread about place about like films her favorite kind of romantic comedies from the silent period um and and where you can get a hold of them and so i i do encourage you know maybe we'll link that uh yeah just link that thread because she has a lot of really good resources for where you can get a hold of these films for free and legally right? Yeah, uh, in a lot of different film archives and and things like that. And so, you know, I'm less versed, obviously, in the silent period than she is. Um, and just just thinking about it, you know, in terms of of doing kind of the run around uh, uh, the code and things like that. The Philadelphia Story is great for that, <laughs> um, and that's one that is is very often cited. But I I love there's there's a scene where like so it's it's the day after and. Catherine Hepburn um, is like, did I spend the night with this guy or not? Um, and she can't remember because she was really, really drunk. <laughs> and he was really, really drunk. And it's it's Jimmy Stewart. And there's this whole going back and forth that everybody's making different assumptions. Mm -hmm. and, and, and finally, Stewart is just like, oh, no, I left you there. I, you know, he, I brought you up to your bedroom and I came back downstairs. Um, and she gets mad at him. <laughs> and she's just like, was I so unattractive? So forbidding. He was just like, oh my God, no, no, you were very attractive, very attractive. And you were very affectionate, but also there are rules about that. <laughs> and I just loved that because it, it makes this joke out of something that's serious, right? But at the same time, it's, it's just like, yeah, he, he's, a, he's actually a, a nice guy. He's a decent man, right? Mm -hmm. and, and her reaction is just like, how dare you not want to sleep with me? My God. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love Jimmy Stewart. I know you don't, but. Um... I, I, I actually really like him in the Philadelphia story. I think yeah. that he's good. Uh, I think he's, he's also good with um, kind of him and Cary Grant, I think, strike a really good balance in that film. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. They're so good. Um I was just thinking of the scene in a movie I know you don't like, which is um It's a Wonderful Life. But it's one of the early scenes. It's like when he first meets um Mary at the dance and he's walking her home and somehow like cause she's in a robe because they had fallen in the pool and her clothes got wet and she ends up behind a bush without a robe. <laughs> <laughs> and he's making all these jokes about it and stuff. And um, anyway, I just was thinking about that. But that's the thing. It's like these scenes and and plot points exist in movies before 1980. And we're just uh, people just need to watch them. And there's so many movies that inspired movies that are being made today. And you can enjoy the movies of like I, when I was in high school, one of my very favorite movies was Sleepless in Seattle. 
when I finally saw it in Affair to Remember, I was like, oh, this just makes me love Sleepless in Seattle that much more because now I fully understand what these characters are talking about, you know? And I understand some of where they're going um, with with this movie. And so it's just, it makes it a richer, deeper experience when you understand the films that inspired the movies that you love now. Yes, Definitely. Definitely. Well, that, that's the other thing that's what's, what was kind of offensive about it, is that all of the comedies that they're referencing built on the older comedies, right? Mm-hmm. Built on the things. And, you know, like you say, some of them even reference them. Yeah. Um, but like they, they built on what was being done this whole time. Di- I love I love screwball comedies because there's this whole idea of banter and innuendo and this these kind of back and forth jokes that is about the sexiness of it like that's how these people fall in love they get to know each other they become attracted to each other um and you know and we're seeing that in certain things things like bridgerton right the most the most recent series of bridgerton is all about them like i hate you i hate you too well actually i'm madly in love with you you know (laughs) it's but it's that kind of love-hate relationship it's that sort of like i'm going to insult you i'll insult you even worse well i find that very hot (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly so yeah as as we always say on this podcast i think watch more movies yeah because if you think that a movie like uh, um, I don't know how to lose a guy in ten days is better than his girl Friday. I think that you need to consider why you think that. And I enjoy how to lose a guy in ten days. It's stupid and it's silly and it's really fun and Matthew McConaughey is hot. But uh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, so before we kind of move on to other things or comments and stuff from other people, do you have any particular films that you would like to mention that we maybe haven't talked about yet that you think people should check out? Well, I, I think that these are kind of famous ones with design for living that I mentioned trouble in paradise is another, um, uh, Lubitsch film that, that is very funny and again, very sexual and it's about jewel thieves uh and uh the the other one is one hour with you which is also a a lubitsch film and that one is funny because like honestly i was shocked by this film (laughs) because i was sitting there going like is this actually about what i think it's about because it's 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 about the these like basically it's marie chevalier and i think jeanette mcdonald and they're married and they obviously have sex a lot um, like there's a scene of them in, in bed together and they're not, obviously they're not having sex, but it's like, it's very indicated that they have just had sex. Um, and her, one of her friends from, uh, from school decide like meets Chevalier in, in like another context and basically just decides like, oh, I'm going to have an affair with him because I'm bored. I want to have an affair. Um, not realizing that this is her friend or anything like that. So the entire film is basically like him trying to convince his wife that he's not actually having an affair with her school friend who 100% is just like I want to fuck you <laughs> and it's it's wild and then like the the Jeanette McDonald character decides like actually you know what I if you're gonna have an affair well I'm gonna have an affair too <laughs> um and this guy's been after me forever and so I'm gonna sleep with him and they're like ah but you know is it 
uh, Chevalier has this whole thing about like, well, if if she suspects me of having an affair, even though I didn't, I might as well just have one because I haven't had any of the fun anyways. <laughs> it's it's a it's actually a very funny film. I think that it's still available on um, on Criterion. If not, like it, it is available elsewhere. Uh, but it is the, just one of those pre-co comedies. That you're just like this. How did you get away with this? How did you do this? <laughs> um, so those are a couple, definitely. And then, of course, it happened one night. Um, if if anyone has not seen it, happened one night. It is one of these seminal romantic comedies. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely watch that. And that's available. I think like it seems like it's always on TCM. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's always in the the hub on HBO Max. It's probably on Criterion. There's lots of places to watch that one. Um, and I would just go back and say, again, like go watch our um or listen to our our May West episode and watch all the May West movies that you can find. Um, I think other movies like The Gay Divorcee, um. Uh, I'm trying to think of of some other ones, but um, yeah, there there's just so so many good ones, and we actually uh, mentioned this on Twitter, and Nanina also wanted to uh, hat tip to Dorothy Arzner's Working Girls and The Wild Party. I have not seen The Wild Party, but Working Girls definitely. Oh yeah, definitely. I love Working Girls. I desperately need Working Girls to come out on Blu-ray. Yeah, because um, that that's one that hasn't been released yet, and it was on Criterion, and then it went off, and I'm like, I would like it back, please. I'm trying to remember now. I feel like I heard that it was going to be coming, but maybe it was just people talking about how much they wish it would. Now I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, it's definitely available, right? So, so it's it's um yeah, you know, they there is like some of some of the Arsner films are actually lost or they're kind of. No, yeah, enough. no, I just, I mean, I heard that the Criterion Edition was coming. Good, good. But, yeah, I, really... but I, I, it might just be that people were saying they wish that there would well, be one, so. They, they've been doing, Criterion has has done a number of Arsner films now, and mm-hmm. they keep on doing more. Kino also tends to do these kinds of things. They need to do a so. set, like a, yeah. just a, a Dorothy Arsner set. That really yep. needs to happen. Um, I just checked, and it's not currently streaming anywhere that doesn't mean that it's not on youtube it's probably on youtube because on just watch if you can't find something but it's an older movie especially pre-code movie you can usually still find it on youtube yeah and my personal opinion is if the studios are not going to make it available it's not stealing (laughs) to watch it in any way that you can oh yeah particularly when it comes to older films Mm mm-hmm Especially movies that are like 90 years old. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we did get a question. I was not going to necessarily talk about it, but it's funny and I love it. So Noah, thank you for your question. He said, I just watched Midsummer. Why is Ari Aster? We don't know. We, we don't we've know. been asking that question for four years. Yeah. We don't. We're still wondering. We don't know. <laughs> I, I I did see I did see a take on on Midsummer on um on Tumblr I think or something <laughs> like that. There's just like Midsummer is not even scary. Like if I went on vacation and everyone was obsessed with me, I would be so happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like that's a really good point. She goes 
on vacation and everybody is obsessed with her. Just like, and I, I wouldn't care who died in a barn. And it's, like, it's true. This isn't scary at all. Oh my gosh, I love it. Yesterday, this is probably TMI, but I don't care. Um, so I get my eyebrows waxed. And I was going to my waxer. She's amazing. Her name is Desiree. She's awesome. And we loved, she loves movies too. And so we always talk about movies. And she was like, we had a really interesting conversation yesterday. She had just seen Everything Everywhere All at Once with Michelle Yeoh. And she was really excited about it. And she was just like, oh my gosh, that movie was so great. And so we were talking a little bit about it. And then randomly she said, <laughs> you're going to laugh at this. She said, are there any A24 movies you don't like? <laughs> and I was like, how much longer do we have? Um, <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm not a big fan of the Ari Aster movies. Oh, God. And she goes, you know, I haven't seen either of those. And so I started talking a little bit about Hereditary. And she was just like, that sounds awful. And I'm like, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. um, it just one of those things. I, I remember, I remember watching Midsommar and then of course you got that really disturbing opening. Right. Mm -hmm. But then partway through the sec, like the rest of the film, I was just like, oh my God, someone has to die. Like <laughs> someone, please, someone kill someone else. Dear Lord. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But let's make it murder and not suicide. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But, um, he's very... He's a very derivative filmmaker and gets away with it. And that's what's frustrating about Ari Aster. And I don't know why he yep. keeps getting to get away with it. And he's apparently got a new movie. He's threatening us with another movie that's going to be out this year. So whatever. <laughs> I may or may not see it. We'll see what happens. Um, I, believe that, I believe that you have to have the existence of Ari Aster in order to have the existence of Robert Eggers. So it's it kind of balances things out. Yeah, um, yeah. All things so, must so have like, opposite, okay. right? Yeah, exactly. So I'm just like, okay, well, if I have to put up with Ari Aster for Robert Eggers, I, I'm okay. I, I can do that. Well, here's what's funny. And again, I haven't seen Northman yet. I'm supposed to see it today. But with The Witch and The Lighthouse, I have an appreciation for both of those movies, even though I do not particularly like either one of them. I know I need to watch The Witch again. But um, but it's funny because it's like I do have this appreciation for his style and his abilities as a filmmaker, even if I don't like his movies. But it's so the opposite with Ari Aster, where it's like, I just, I don't appreciate your style. I don't appreciate anything that you're doing. Mm -hmm. I just, it's... Yeah. On, well, and with, with, with Aster, on paper, I like Ari Aster. Like, yeah. I look at, like, actually, you know, I look at Hereditary, like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. You know, Midsummer, it's like, oh, all right, you know, and, and I keep on watching them because of this, mm -hmm. right? And then I actually watch them just like, why? Fuck you. Well, I should have <laughs> just watched Rosemary's Baby, because... <laughs> That's at least a good movie. Yeah. I'm that way with Darren Aronofsky, too, although I do think that he's a competent filmmaker. But I'm always, like, looking forward to his movies when I see what they're about and I see, like, little snippets or pictures or whatever. I'm like, oh, maybe this is the one I'm going to like. Nope. Nope. Not again. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of... Like Some filmmakers are just like that. They keep on fooling us. Yes. <laughs> yes. They do. Ah. Uh. Someone who does not disappoint me, though, we didn't even talk about this, but that's Taika Waititi in the trailer for Thor Love and Thunder is my favorite movie of the year. 
<laughs> I I am very looking forward to that just because I appreciate what he does in life. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Anyway, um, you did see a movie this week that you wanted to briefly talk about. Do you still want to talk about it or would you like to pretend it doesn't exist? I will mention it very briefly. uh, So, you know, we don't run long or anything like that. But yes, I did see The Batman. It took me two days to watch it. You (laughs) thought it took me three, which I think is hilarious. It felt like three days. Um, I kind of knew, like I started, I was just like, I'm not going to sit here for three hours. Like, like I'm going to, I'm going to pause partway through. What you paused after two hours and saw it had only been twenty minutes, and you're like, yeah. what the hell?" <laughs> I began okay, but the problem was I began laughing within the first ten minutes of the film because I was like, "This is a joke, right?" For anybody like, who hasn't seen it, it's not funny. So the fact no, that it's she's not laughing is direly serious. Like there are three jokes in this fucking movie, and I think all of them are made by the penguin. Yeah. Um it's like it is so serious. And but that's what was so funny about it. I was like, but it's like a noir movie voiceover, but in like kind of a funny way, like the like a dead men don't wear plaid kind of way. And and all I could think of throughout the entire thing was Batman's song from the Lego movie where he goes, Darkness no parents <laughs> that entire time i was just like darkness no parents so this is really great music oh gosh i love it so much um yeah i i was not a fan and i was actually kind of i was disappointed because i think that there are good things in it as i was saying to you um i i think that there's probably two two good fast-paced films in this film um, but that it just goes on for so long. There's so many endings. Um, you know, there's not, you've got the Riddler's kind of, and, and the Riddler is a great villain. Like the way that they develop him, I really liked the, that, the choices that they made about him. Um, but it just keeps on going. And, and I was like, so there's like three, there, there are two, three villains and like one kind of, you know, Catwoman is sort of the, the back and forth kind of person. Um, but it it just kept going, and I was like, there, how can there be another hour and a half left of this film? Like, how? So you're just going to do an entirely other film now that you have come to a natural conclusion with the one? Uh, I did. I like. I liked um, uh, Zoe Kravitz. I liked uh, um, Colin Farrell, even though he is taking roles away from chubby Italian men. Um, I think that his Penguin was great. Like he and and like I said, he was actually funny. Like there were jokes. Uh, I like. I really wanted more of him. I'm just gonna say. Yeah. Well, and that, that's that's what I'm saying. Like, I think that there there were two good films in this, and you could have spent more time developing the characters, developing the Penguin, um, developing Catwoman, developing like all of these relationships, uh, developing Bruce Wayne, who is like in as Bruce Wayne, he's like in the film for ten minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, like, I I was not a fan of the Batman. I did actually put on um, Birds of Prey after I finished the film uh, the second day. <laughs> I was just like, choice. I just got to put on Birds of Prey, and I watched like the first twenty minutes of Birds and Prey of Birds of Prey, and I was like, oh yeah, like comic book movies can be fun. That's nice to remember and deal with serious topics at the same time. It's amazing. yes, exactly. I really, really want either I want Kathy Yan to direct a Batman movie, or I want her to get a Birds of Prey sequel, which she definitely deserves, and so do all of us, uh, and I want Batman to be in it. 
and I want it to be a totally different actor playing Batman. I think it'd be great. Um, and this is not that, you know, honestly, my problems with this movie are not really even about Robert Pattinson. I don't, I don't particularly think that he's right for the role of Bruce Wayne slash Batman, but I get why he felt like the right casting choice for this version, I guess. Um, but he's, Batman just kind of sucks in the Batman and, uh, in Uh a lot of ways. (laughs) And yeah. And as I said to you, I feel like this movie tries to do too many things and ends up doing not enough things at the same time. And it's, it's a, it's a problem. Yeah. I think if this, he was so determined, Matt Reeves was so determined to make this a standalone movie that he didn't do enough of of what was needed but he also tried to just cram too much in which is why it's three hours but it feels like it's seven um like i remember when i was watching it in the theater and it was i was in a crowded theater of people that i would have assumed would be totally into this and clearly I mean, the second the credits started rolling, people were jumping out of their seats to leave. And I was, and nobody was, like, excited. Everyone was just, like, quiet when it was over. It was a very unusual experience. And I was like, wow, I don't think people like this. And a couple people had actually, like, walked out partway through and stuff. It was just, it was... So when I got on Twitter and I saw how much people loved it, I was just like, what is going on? This is such a crazy disconnect. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I, yeah. my Matt Reeves is another one where I'm always like, well, maybe with his movies. And then I see them and I'm like, no, not really. Just not into them. Like, I did not like it, what he did with Planet of the Apes. I don't know if you saw that trilogy, but uh, like... Yeah, I, I liked I liked Planet of the Apes. I'm trying to remember. I don't think I saw the full trilogy, though. Well, that's the thing. So, like, the, I liked the first one. Um, I don't know if I actually saw the second movie. <laughs> kind of funny. But um, the third movie is called War for the Planet of the Apes. And there's not really a war. There's a battle. But it's over kind of quick. <laughs> it's just like... I. I don't think that war means what you think it means, but okay. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm not a huge fan of Matt Reeves, and I know that that's, like, an unpopular opinion, but it's just how it is. Anyway. So, I think that's it for this week. Anything else you wanted to mention? No. All Watch right. more movies. <laughs> Watch more movies. Uh, Yeah, and there's some good ones out, if you can... If you can find them, there's lots of good stuff. So if you are comfortable going to the theater, I highly recommend The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. It's fantastic. Um, The Bad Guys is a lot of fun, too. I haven't really talked about that one. It's fun, but it's also not like a must-go-see unless you have kids and they really want to watch it. Um, That's one that if you're not comfortable going to the movies, then you definitely can wait on that one. But also it's a good time to go back and catch up on everything everywhere all at once as well also definitely worth your time um i do think it's funny how there are people a lot of people who are like ew i don't want to watch that movie but they're super excited for dr strange too i'm like uh i guarantee that everything everywhere is going to be a much more interesting multiverse movie than dr strange (laughs) just a thought anyway 
yeah. So that that is it for this week. Um, thank you all so much for listening. We especially want to thank our patrons who help make the show possible. And I don't, I don't think I ever got around to tweeting it. But our bonus episode, our uh, episode about Rebecca, the Alfred Hitchcock version of Rebecca, is out now for patrons. I have not gotten the excerpt done for everyone else, but hopefully that'll be out this week. Um, I'll try. Uh, yeah, but we want to thank our patrons for helping us, uh, keep the show going and help us in so many ways. And they are Adriana, Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. And if you would like to join them, become a patron yourself, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame and subscribe. We have different levels, so you can choose what feels right for you. Uh, we do also have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. New stuff's coming there. We have our ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash citizen dame if you would like to support the show but don't want to subscribe and don't want to buy stuff. Um, yeah, we also have our website, citizendamepod.com. Uh, my review of The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent is uh, there by the time that you are listening to this, so go check that out. Um, more stuff is coming. Are you going to be covering Tribeca this year, Lauren? I have not actually applied for it um, oh, okay. because I'm not certain if I am going to be comfortable going to it. Uh, and last year it was so difficult to actually get proper screeners for, for a lot of things. Um but I think that I am going to send an application for it anyways and just see what happens. Okay, cool. So if you follow on our website, you can maybe see coverage from the Tribeca Film Festival. Um, and some other stuff that's coming that way. And let's see, you can also reach out to us by email if you would like to, citizendamepod at gmail.com. And you can find us on the social medias. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Citizen Dame, pa- Citizen Dame Pod. And on Letterboxd, we are at Citizen Dame. Lauren, where are you if people would like to reach you individually? I am on, let's see, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Twitter at LH Business. <laughs> and <I> am- <laughs> Fair enough. And I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. Thank you all so much, and that's going to finish us up for this week. We will catch you next time. Bye. Darkness. No parents. Continue darkness. More darkness.